0: St. John of the Cross tells us, Without the aid of mental prayer, the soul cannot triumph over the forces of the demon. Welcome to the Meditation and Mental Prayer podcast. This is Catholics Talking to God. My name is Christabel and I'm a Catholic teacher and theologian. This podcast is predominantly about mental prayer and all things that lead to mental prayer. For instance, we'll be talking about living in the presence of God and we'll be examining how best to do that. In the episode, we look at one aspect of our preparation for meditation and mental prayer. Now, as we know, the seven steps are the first one, preparation, then our reading, And then our reflection on what we've read, which we would call meditation. Then our colloquy, which is the fourth step, which is the real essence of mental prayer and its heart. Then in five, we have thanksgiving and our resolution and our agreement with God as to how we are going to do better. Our sixth step is, of course, the offering of ourselves and further this resolution. And the seventh is petition. So now what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the preparation. And within the preparation is identifying our predominant fault. And this should be done well before we approach the actual time of meditation. It can be done the day before or the week before. Because when we come before God, when we seek to be happy in his presence, we need to be seen to be working on our faults to please him. You know this whenever you come toward him. Now, why should we do this? Well, as followers of Christ, we must be clothed in virtues. For we Catholics, virtues are the diamonds, rubies and jewels that we need to be hankering after. These virtues will glisten and sparkle in our soul after death. Imagine walking up to God with a soul like that. Can you imagine how pleased that would make him? To acquire these jewels, we must eradicate our faults. And to eradicate them, we need to label them and to attend to them. The path on which we have started in mental prayer is in fact a road made of light. Try to imagine a road in front of you stretching into the distance. Its pathway is golden light. What is different about this light? Well, it's perfect light in which there are no smudges or bits of dust floating about. When we step onto this road, frighteningly it shows up every smudge and every dirty streak within our soul. As we enter into close proximity of Jesus through mental prayer, Our soul, to survive the encounter, must be stainless or totally committed to becoming so. You know yourself how God is kind, so as not to blind us, he dims his light to encourage us to be able to come closer to him. If we take our predominant fault first, do we know what it is? Sometimes we don't. One way of finding out is to ask our family or the people we live with to help us identify what they see as our worst fault. It's been a few years since I first began doing mental prayer and it makes me smile to recall what happened when I first asked my husband and children what was my predominant fault. They answered without hesitation, anger. I laughed, anger indeed. I explained to them that I was serious. I really wanted to know what my predominant fault was but they wouldn't budge. It was anger, they insisted. So I said nothing but I thought they were wrong. I was a very placid person. I was known to be placid. All my friends remarked on it. I often lived with people who hated me for my religion and I always won them over. I worked in a situation where I was bullied to such an extent that the authority I worked for held an investigation and yet I never showed any anger toward the bullies. In fact, I prayed for my tormentors every day. How on earth could anger be my predominant fault? Well, it took me a while to figure it out. I'd lived in Belfast through the Troubles and had friends who were shot dead. Our family business was burned to the ground. During this time, I fought against the health board on individual cases where they wanted to pay for our clients to go to England to have abortions. I was warned by management in that situation that I would lose my job if I continued. I ignored them and continued undercover, using the law against them. But I was getting angry inside. I had a white-hot rage inside me that just smouldered deep down. It only ever boiled up to the surface at home with the family and only after a long series of incidents that caused frustration. Because I would silently put up with annoyance for so long, of course I thought I was okay, I thought I was patient. But when I blew, it wasn't anger I portrayed, but rage, totally inappropriate to the annoyance suffered. Most people would go for counselling, but my anger was healed through God's grace when doing mental prayer, coupled with a desire to acquire virtue. So I approached mental prayer with asking for the grace to overcome anger and for the gift of the virtue of patience. I honestly believe that you will never need counselling if you do mental prayer. So that's my story. What's yours, dear listener? My predominant fault was anger. My required virtue was patience. What is your predominant fault at the moment? Because we always have one fault that predominates. As we annihilate one, we see another that needs attention. God loves us. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to be in heaven. When we approach him with humility, asking for graces needed to serve him better, he will come more than halfway to greet us. There are a number of different reasons the saints give us for wanting to become holy. For instance, St John Christostom frequently urges us to acquire virtue. He gives the following reason, and I'll read it to you. If you would labour effectively to make your soul the temple and the abode of the divinity, never lose sight of the solemn and awful day when you are to appear before the tribunal of Christ to render an account of all your works. Represent to yourself the glory and majesty with which Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. Consider the irrevocable sentence which will be pronounced upon mankind and the terrible separation which will follow. The just will enter into the possession of the ineffable joy and happiness. The wicked will be precipitated into exterior darkness where there will be perpetual weeping and gnashing of teeth. They will be gathered like weeds and cast into the fire. So which virtue will we choose first? The Bible tells us over and over that charity is the highest virtue. True charity encompasses all other virtues. I'm putting the word true before the term charity because like the word love, the word charity has been vandalised by the modern world. Wirtlings use the term charity as a mask to dupe the kind-hearted lining their own pockets with the gifts they receive. Charity means love of God. It has nothing to do with running shoes or cake sales. And love of God means love of neighbour. In that charity are incorporated all the virtues, all the good, everything that will make us pleasing to God. Because charity is such a huge concept to cover, we can have a look at some of its intricacies. If we have a look today at envy, even though it might not be our predominant fault, to understand and see it as the saints did, we can always advise others when we see them unintentionally begin to fall into this sin. Of course, envy, like all other sins, has varying degrees. If we look at the New Testament and we see the interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus, we realise how envy is a terrible thing. It might only be a fleeting thing for you or I. And we might not even notice those little sparks of envy that run through us. But they have to be watched and they have to be stamped out. This is a very serious vice. And because we don't feel it really that often, we don't recognise it. But if it were to be fuelled, it would end in someone's death. That's the obvious ending of envy. Because when we envy someone else, we want them gone out of our lives. If there is a situation in a workplace, in the family, that someone is more successful than us, better than us at something, and the fleeting envy means that we want what they've got. And most people, whenever they're tempted with this, put it aside right away. Some people don't. Let's look at what happened with the Pharisees. The Pharisees came along at first to see what Jesus was doing and what he was saying. And they listened to the people and how the adulation for Jesus grew. And the Pharisees then became envious. We'll be told later that Pilate knew that the Pharisees and the priests were only giving Jesus up because they were envious of him. And they would not be satisfied until he was dead. I remember feeling a feeling of envy and one should be careful because sometimes things are not all as they seem. I was working in a situation where there were a set of people intent on torturing me emotionally. And it was dreadful, really dreadful situation to be in. I never envied any of them. But one day someone came into the workplace that lived a lifestyle that was different and my tormentors treated this person with great friendship, great love, great fun, and it was, it was just lovely to see. But for a fleeting moment, I was envious. Why could I not be treated like that? And I was envious of the person who was getting such terrific treatment. Now, if we fast forward a year, I became friendly with the person and enjoyed their company in the work situation. But suddenly they didn't turn up to work anymore. And what had happened was that these very same people who were treating this person with great adulation and friendship were actually mocking them. And the strange thing was, this person who was being mocked had the same lifestyle as a few of the people who had started to torment him. And the only thing I can think is that he was overtly open in his lifestyle, whereas there lifestyle of the same was secret. But this poor young man became extremely ill, extremely ill through the vicious attention of these people who were to the outside world and to everyone else pretending that they thought he was a great fellow. So maybe it's not such a good idea to envy because you don't know. You just don't know what's going on. And I remember whenever it first began, I said to God, Why can't they be nice to me like that, Lord? Why can't you change things? Little did I know. Sometimes Satan suggests to a person a feeling of envy. And then he suggests to them that to get what they want, wouldn't it be great if the person died? Now, obviously, that's hatred. And it's totally against charity. When people are over-emotional about something and entrenched in their thinking, A suggestion like that coming from Satan can lead them, as it led the Pharisees, down a long road. Even get them to think things, believe things, hope things that they wouldn't normally believe or hope. Now the lesser sin of envy would be when we sigh after something that our friend or our neighbour has and we'd like to have it. But usually we're philosophical about it and we, you know, put it to one side, put the thought out of our heads. If we... Think about it too much. We do commit a venial sin. And of course, a venial sin, our fault would be that we are not grateful enough to God for what we already have. Some very important people were guilty of envy. In Acts 7, St. Paul reminds us of how Joseph was sold into slavery by his envious brothers. Remember the Joseph of the coat of many colours? St. Paul says, And the patriarchs, through envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. Now we ought to look at jealousy. Jealousy is a little different. Jealousy is when we see a situation between two people and we are jealous of it. It's to do with people and relationships. That's where jealousy comes in. As I say that, you'll suddenly go, oh yes, of course. But sometimes it's difficult to remember what the difference is between envy and jealousy. There is a terrible jealousy which can happen with people in religious circles. And that is where one person feels jealous of another's goodness. That is a most serious, serious sin. It is hatred of God and one must always be very, very careful of it. The disciples of Jesus were at times envious of each other. Read about the incident in Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 37. Read until verse 44. And this is what it says. And they said, Grant to us that we may sit one at thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. And the ten hearing it began to be much displeased at James and John. But Jesus calling them saith to them, You know that they who rule over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their princes have power over them. But it is not so among you. But whosoever will be greater shall be your minister. And whosoever shall be first among you shall be the servant of all. So envy in this situation by the disciples was about the desire for glory, importance, success, lording it over the others. They wanted to get up there, into the main seats, while the others weren't looking. Now all of this type of behaviour is encouraged today. Success is the magic word. I believe this began in earnest with books like How to Win Friends and Influence People, and the other book, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Apparently, 800 million is spent every year on self-improvement in America. This type of self-improvement never mentions sacrifice or penance or improvement of morals. It's quite the opposite, in fact. The whole thinking is to do what you want, get what you want, really despite other people. If we were to focus on envy as our predominant fault, What would our morning meditation and mental prayer be like? We will already have chosen the scripture reading and we would come to our time of prayer with an understanding of how we have been guilty of envy. We begin by placing ourselves in the presence of God and we'd be meditating on readings, say, from Wisdom, chapter 2, verse 24. But by the envy of the devil, death came into the world. And then Matthew 27, 17. They therefore being gathered together, Pilate said, Whom will you that I release to you, Barabbas, or Jesus that is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. During the meditation, we should both meditate and contemplate. In our meditation, we'll read and examine the scriptures first, Then we find our mind wandering, we'll simply refocus again on the words. As we read, we discuss in our own minds the truths we are examining. If we apply ourselves properly, our intellect will delve deeper. Contemplation should occur during our meditation. This is whenever we stop speaking, there are no words, and the whole conversation with Christ disappears. And just in his presence, we have silent understanding. Just a silent understanding. It's called an illumination of the soul. St. Teresa describes it as an instantaneous glance of revelation. As you focus on talking to Jesus about the envy of the Pharisees, allow yourself to be upset on Jesus' behalf. If you and I only study what is going on in the meditation and learn about it. That's not enough. We must go further and we must go into loving Jesus. We must go into being at one with him. So as we finish our meditation, we come to our caliloquy or our prayer. And there's a lot goes on in this. It comes to love. It comes to, yes, a conversation. But our conversation is prayer. It incorporates how much we love Jesus. It incorporates what we're going to do. We tell him how we're going to change because we love him. To please him, we are going to be careful of envy. Watch out for envy. We tell him about situations we've been in in the past. And how sorry we are that we thought one way, acted another So this is the growth from the mental prayer. The growth that will help our everyday lives become more perfect. Then we go into the thanksgiving. And in the thanksgiving, we thank Jesus that we were privileged to come and speak to him. We thank him for being Catholic, our baptism, for the spiritual graces that he gives. We thank him for the people in our lives. And we make a resolution, a resolution to do better. And then we have the offering. Just a few sentences where we offer our lives to him. And then the petition. The petition is where we implore his help to become better. And this is a very important part. Though it's quick, it's at the end. The feeling of humility must be there. We have to know that we aren't capable of doing any of this. We are not capable of doing the good that we would like to do. Only God can help us do it. Only he can give us the grace. And the thing about it is that suddenly you find yourself doing something, something good, and you think, "Wow, oh, that was easy. It never used to be. And that is the fruits of mental prayer. It becomes easy to become perfect because God is doing the work. Because during mental prayer, we go forward into Jesus. We go into God. And when we leave, we take traces of him on our soul that weren't there before. And that's why the saints keep insisting that without mental prayer, we can't really get to salvation because we need to touch God and it needs to be a personal thing. Yes, we get all our graces from communion, from confession, from the sacraments, but this is slightly different. Those things are laid out for us. The church has made them available. Mental prayer is different. Mental prayer is when we get up and go. We arise and go. Go to God. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Meditation and Mental Prayer, Catholics Talking to God. Now next week we'll look at placing ourselves in the presence of God. In the meantime, don't forget your Thanksgiving and resolutions. For more information on Catholic Meditation and Mental Prayer, go to meditationjournals.com Thank you and God bless.